The hymn we just sang together uh, was originally published under the title, As Thy Days, So Shall Thy Strength Be. The central text is from Deuteronomy 33, where Moses blesses the tribe of Asher like this. Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. A promise of strong children, oil so plentiful that you can wash your feet in it, precious ore underfoot everywhere you step, and a promise better than all that, God's provision of strength enough to meet well the daily trials of hard life in a fallen world all your days. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. John Fawcett, a little-known pastor uh, of a poor little country church in Waynesgate, Yorkshire, published that hymn in 1782. Now, ten years earlier, he had been invited to succeed the famous Dr. John Gill at Carter's Lane Church in London. Struggling to raise a growing family on a tiny salary, 25 pounds a year, he accepted and determined to go. Josiah Miller, an English minister and hymnologist, born about 50 years later, tells the story. The farewell sermon was preached. The wagons were loaded when love and tears prevailed. Dr. Fawcett sacrificed the attraction of a London pulpit to the affection of his poor but devoted flock. I wonder if love and tears still prevail over our ambitions. If you were offered something like that, would others' affections turn your eyes from that big attraction and the promise of comfort for your family? Dr. Fawcett turned down other big offers over the years. He watched over that little Yorkshire flock the rest of his days, a life Miller described as one of suffering, notwithstanding of incessant useful activity. His sufferings increased towards the close of his life, Miller writes, but they were born with patience. When near the end of his course, he said, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. John Fawcett understood Christian suffering. And when we understand Dr. Fawcett as someone who has been brought through trials to the end of his own strength, where he discovered endless stores of sustaining grace, made ready in Christ and his promises, we hear the gentle voice of a seasoned pastor encouraging his little flock in the first lines of his hymn. Afflicted saint, to Christ draw near, thy Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word declares to thee that as thy day, thy strength shall be. John Fawcett seems to know something about how to suffer well and keep going, doesn't he? Really, it's all right there in those first four lines. So let's talk a while about gaining our own understanding of Christian suffering. We begin by believing God and knowing who we are in Christ. I'm wondering if anyone here this morning remembers last July where to find the believer's new birth certificate in the Bible. First Peter, yes. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 specifically. So please open your Bibles there. 
You'll find it on page 1014 of your pew Bible. And if you can also remember our talk way back last September, we discussed the steadfast anticipation of a disciple's immortal hope. And we sang about that living hope just moments ago from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Maybe not the greatest sermon title ever, but hopefully helpful for us to gain a little traction for this morning. We'll be looking at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9 this morning, and if we listen close, we will hear that gentle voice of a seasoned pastor encouraging little flocks scattered and suffering across Asia Minor. And I hope we're encouraged too, as we learn what Pastor Peter and Dr. Fawcett discovered through trials, endless stores of sustaining grace made ready in Christ and His promises to cheer us all the way home. God has inexhaustible provisions in his hand for us to stuff in our backpacks for our pilgrimage today. Five gospel things we must learn to suffer well and keep going. Gospel truth transcends our circumstance. Gospel reality transforms our suffering. Trial-tested faith is our greatest earthly possession. Genuine faith brings forth God's commendation in the judgment at the return of the king. And battle-seasoned belief in Christ cheers us all the way home. So, let's listen well to 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come now in the spirit to your trustworthy word, asking that our minds and hearts be changed so that we might learn to rejoice even as we suffer in the likeness of Christ here in our place of exile from our true home. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and to believe you when you promise to care for us and to deliver us unto yourself so that we might prevail and fulfill your plan and design for us to be with you and walk with you and give thanks to you without fail. We confess our weakness, Lord, and the sin that still dogs us and causes us to disobey you and sometimes even to doubt. We trust in your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And in him, we rejoice and look forward to his return. This we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. First gospel thing we need to learn to suffer well and keep going. Gospel truth transcends our circumstances. We should have a slide. Let's begin with verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice. Remember, at this time, this isn't FaceTime. It's a hand-carried letter, handwritten to a handful of churches scattered around what's now called Turkey. 
And these saints are suffering in ways very few Christians in America today have ever suffered for faith in Christ. Some are converted Jews, hated for believing Jesus, forced from their homes, and driven out of Judea, finding their way to Asia Minor. Others grew up right there in Asia Minor, knowing only the local gods. But since being born again, they find themselves increasingly unwelcome at home, poor, unwanted, and afraid. Now, we don't know how severe persecution in this region is at this time, but it's getting worse, and we know terrible things are coming. But somehow, Peter, writing from Rome, assumes, in verse 6, that in this you all rejoice. So for us to learn to suffer and rejoice, and we will suffer, we need to know what this is Peter's writing about. This is the gospel. Every work and promise of God in Jesus Christ that we see in the preceding verses in 1 Peter. So look at verses 1 through 5. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge or forelove of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you rejoice, says Peter. And the Greek here is strong. You greatly rejoice. You jump for joy. Now how does Peter know that suffering saints in desperate need and hurting can possibly be rejoicing in all this? Because in Christ, Peter's one of us. And he knows to look to the gospel for endless stores of sustaining grace. The gospel introduces us to the God of all grace who's known us and loved us from before all time. Who sent his son to rescue us from the sin mess we've made of ourselves and everything else we can see. The gospel unites us with our Savior, raises us with him from death in Adam to life in Christ and makes outright rebels and God-haters into his cherished children, reborn of the Spirit, learning to love. The gospel explains why we're increasingly unwelcome on our own planet. Retrofitted misfits in an upside-down world that just doesn't look like it could go on much longer like this. The gospel tells us why we suddenly long for a home brimming with the bright glory that we've only just glimpsed. So that we treasure the sweet foretaste we have in the church of the real home the Spirit's making us ready for and Christ is making ready for us. The gospel gives us immortal hope, eternal life, and a God-guaranteed family inheritance better than anything anywhere, ever. We are elect exiles. The gospel determines who we are where we're going, and nothing can change that because the gospel is good news. A true report to us 
of actual historical events that have taken place. It's finished. Believing the good news is knowing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what he says he did. The good news about the Son of God is true and complete. So we can completely trust his promises for our present and for our future. So, when sorrows drag you into a dark hole so deep that you think you might not ever get out, the first thing you need to know to suffer well and keep going is that gospel truth transcends all circumstances. God never abandons his children no matter how bad things might look. In this, we rejoice. And it isn't always in us to rejoice, is it? If it isn't in you just now to rejoice, remember Dr. Fawcett's hymn, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near, Thy Savior's Gracious Promise Here. Keep leaning on and leaning in and listening daily for the word of Christ. There's purpose to all this. Which brings us to the second gospel thing we need to learn to suffer well and keep going. Gospel reality transforms our suffering. Look again at verse six. In this, our gospel reality, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Suffering and grief are spinoffs of the fall and the curse of sin, and they are, they are our real and very dangerous enemies. And if that weren't so, there'd be no end of suffering for anyone because nobody's innocent. But our trials are governed by our sovereign God and administered through his divine providence for everyone. Peter calls them various trials, or in some translations, manifold temptations. And they come in all kinds. Not only injustice and persecution, but also ostracism, racism, terrorism, war, loss of loved ones, joblessness, homelessness, poverty, physical illness, mental illness, helplessness, spiritual depression, and even doubts. Now, the saints in Asia Minor battled all these, plus things we can't even think of. So when Peter writes of various trials, modern Christians have many things in common, as you'll notice, especially if you read Voice of the Martyrs. But if you don't believe the good news about Jesus, suffering and grief are your experience too, aren't they? And if we love you, and we do. We'll tell you the truth about all that. If you don't believe the good news, your suffering is necessary as part of God's righteous curse upon all sinners. And it even has a good purpose as one way God calls out to his lost sheep. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, as C.S. Lewis wrote. 
But if you don't respond and receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, your sufferings are not temporary. More terrible things are coming for you in the judgment at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to them there is no end. Because God gave his infinite son, whom he loves more deeply and devotedly than any of us have ever loved anybody. And because his perfect justice is rooted in perfect love, he can't overlook your rejection of his beloved son, who suffered and died to save sinners from the just consequences of the rebellion against God that you may not even realize you're caught up in. So please, take heed and come to us with your questions about Jesus because we do love you and the stakes just can't be higher. For the redeemed, our gospel reality means our trials and grief are temporary and necessary and profoundly purposeful. Even as our trials often seem more traumatic than for those outside God's family. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you who trust Jesus have been grieved by various trials and more are coming. Peter makes three points here. Point A, we suffer and grieve only now and never after we die or after Christ returns. This is confirmed in the revelation of Christ to John. When at last the dwelling place of God is with man, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. Now we need to learn and treasure this promise to realize the reason Jesus gave John the revelation which is to encourage suffering saints to persevere in certain hope and not to create a battleground to divide us. Point B, our trials go on only for a little while. Our brief years walking around in corrupted flesh are but an eye blink compared to blessed eternity future with Jesus. We need to learn that an eternal perspective is proper for all Christians and indispensable for us to suffer well and keep going. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians 4 with the phrase, light momentary affliction. And we'll come back to that passage. Point C. We suffer only in ways deemed necessary by our wise Father to accomplish His good purposes for His glory. We need to learn that we have a perfect Father in charge of everything. And He loves us and does everything for our good from a big picture depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge far beyond our understanding. Now, our suffering can be so deep that we doubt this, as I'm sure was the case for many in Asia Minor at that time. But amazingly, in God's expert hands, even the doubts of a true son or daughter in Christ 
serve his kind purposes for us. And these realities help us gain an understanding of Christian suffering like Dr. Fawcett's. That's why Peter gives us his theology of suffering in this epistle. And the other apostles agree. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, Paul's understanding bears striking resemblance to Peter's. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul agrees with Peter that the first thing we need to know to suffer well and keep going is the gospel truth. That we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and permanently at peace with God. And through our sweet union with the Lord Jesus, we can always run to our loving Father and receive grace and hope and strength freely. Not only that, Paul writes, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We see in all this that suffering is the premier channel through which the indwelling spirit sanctifies God's children. Jesus' half-brother James put it similarly in the first few lines of his letter to suffering saints. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through through 4. Paul reminds us also in Colossians 2 that asceticism and severity to the body are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we don't need to seek out suffering or be masochistic in hopes of speeding things along. Live a simple, faithful life. Attend the gathering of the saints. Partake in the word and prayer, baptism and communion. Learn to obey from the heart all that Jesus commanded us. Pursue holiness. Love others. Serve well and heartily. Tell others the good news and trust the Spirit to sanctify you in his time, and in his way. God will appoint precisely applied trials uniquely tailored to you and me to produce the most lovely Christ-likeness in us. And it's amazing to see how lovely, joyful, peaceful, patient, and kind are many who have suffered the most. In this way, our gospel reality transforms our trials. So, when the chips are down, 
and it seems like God's against you. If your family's broken or you've lost someone you love, if you're depressed and doubting and you've lost the trust or the energy to pray, if you're broke or lonely, left out or unwelcome, filled with anxiety and feeling like a failure, if you lost your job, your home, your car, if you're sick, facing surgery, facing death, disabled or in constant pain, remember these gospel things. I spoke with a dear brother just this past week. He talked about what it's like going through the fight of his life. I talked about being pretty sure I was going to drown in the ocean about a year ago. We talked about fear and faith, crying out and drawing near, and hearing in dire moments our Savior's gracious promise. You know what he said? Not until you're in the midst of it do you really understand it. So right. God gets us clinging to Christ like never before through divinely appointed trials necessary for our growth. And in the midst of it, we need God's word and our church family to remind us of what is real for us in Christ. Our trials are only for now, only for a little while, and always necessary as the Spirit makes use of them to build us up in faith, holiness, and love, bringing forth in us good spiritual fruit to nourish others for God's glory. The grand purpose for your deep suffering and sometimes heartbreaking grief is to bring you ever closer in fellowship with love for and likeness to our gracious King, Jesus. Especially if persecution is coming and you're scared out of your mind. Peter puts it this way in the fourth chapter of this very letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Knowing this, the apostles bravely endured flogging at the hands of the Sanhedrin as documented in Acts 5, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus by whose stripes we are healed. Which brings us to the third gospel thing we need to learn to suffer well and keep going. Trial-tested faith is our greatest earthly possession. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith refined through fiery trial is more valuable than any amount of money. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. The best gold. We should understand anything said to be more valuable than gold in Scripture to be something absolutely priceless. But gold itself is either common or worthless in the new heavens, new earth economy. It perishes. Those who possess true faith in Christ never do. True faith is of greater value than any temporal possession, more than shelter, food, even more than family, more than mortal life itself. But how precious is God's gift of faith to us? Do we thank him for it? Or is it to our own credit? Nothing but God-gifted faith can carry us through death to our true home and peace forever in Christ. It's like biting a gold coin and rejoicing that it's not a hunk of worthless lead. Not proving anything to our omniscient God about your faith, but to you and maybe to those around you. There's nothing more valuable to a saint than his faith refined through God-appointed trials, coming out purified, brighter, more durable and desirable than it ever could be without passing through holy fire. Who cares then about new worry lines, white hair, and deep scars that might show? They're all traced in the shocking but beautiful contours of nail holes and a spear wound. Some of the most beautiful words in Scripture that describe God's supernatural way of sanctifying His people through the Spirit and fire are found in Psalm 66, part of which Josh read for us earlier. So just listen for echoes of everything Peter, Paul, James, John, and Dr. Fawcett are teaching us today. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There we did rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Hear the echoes of deliverance through waters of judgment, prefiguring the cross and our baptism into the sun. There we did rejoice in him. Listen now for the minor chords of trials, suffering, and grief. Appointed by God and precisely divinely applied through an attacking foreign nation, uniquely tailored to a redeemed but immature people. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net, 
You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Psalm 66, 10 through 12. All this for love. To refine a straying nation's faith and bring it through. Scarred, but brighter, more durable, more desirable. Then a shout of astonished realization in fresh robes on firmer ground after fire and flood have passed. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. God never fails to raise us up out of the depths and bring us to sweeter pastures in this life or the next. To white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise, as sure as Gandalf told Pippin. But the sweetest part of Psalm 66 I kept for myself to share personally with you, my family, whom I love. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. The fire tested genuineness of faith that abides in God's faithfulness to save is infinitely more precious than fire-tested gold that perishes. Where are our values? Knowing this truth helps us praise God through fire and flood. And amazingly, God's unlimited stockpile of sustaining grace in Christ holds even more for us here. Reading verse 7 rightly means setting aside for a moment the analogous aside about gold. That means laying aside for a moment everything between the dashes in English Standard and New International, or in New American and King James, everything between the commas. For a moment. Then we grasp the sense and magnitude of what Peter's saying here. It reads this way. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This brings us to the fourth gospel thing we need to learn to suffer well and keep going. This next great reality of the Christian life may be the one we find hardest to believe. Genuine faith brings forth God's commendation in the judgment at the return of the king. Proven faith will bring forth God's praise, glory, and honor for suffering saints to be received in union with Christ at the last day. Let that sink in a minute. Is that how you picture yourself at our first face-to-face meeting with glorious King Jesus? Or do thoughts of shame in his almighty presence flood your soul? You may be thinking, I don't deserve God's praise. In a sense, you're right. I don't deserve to share in Christ's glory, nor to receive any honor because I'm still a sinner and probably a failure. 
Well, if the gospel were about what we deserve or about our success, we'd have no hope, certainly no living hope, and no reason to look forward to seeing Jesus. But the whole New Testament looks forward to that lovely moment with joy because Christ's work is sufficient. As Peter told us in verses 2 and 3, we are sprinkled with the Savior's blood, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, reborn, beloved children of God. We must understand we are bound for glory, completely safe in Christ in the judgment of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But how can we share in even a glint of God's praise, glory, and honor for Christ, to whom all is rightly due? When our best good works are shot through with sin and our steadfastness under trial wavers so easily. I can't improve on the Reformer's clear explanation of God's amazing grace in all this. Quoting from the Second London Baptist Confession, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. God gives us such grace. So we do not lose heart, Paul writes in the passage I promised I'd get back to in 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal forever. For love, our fellow suffering Saint Dr. Dr. Fawcett looked not to the things that are seen, but to unseen greater things, forever things, when he turned down the big offer to succeed John Gill at Carter's Lane Church. Dr. Gill's commentaries are in wide use even today, and I recommend them. Of God's promise in 1 Peter of praise, glory, and honor for us to anticipate on that bright day, Dr. Gill writes, Jesus Christ, who is now in the highest heavens and out of sight, will appear a second time unto salvation and every eye shall see him. And when the believer will be found in him, and his faith be found unto praise by him, he will have praise of him himself. It will be said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. His faith will be praised for its steadiness and constancy, notwithstanding all persecutions and tribulations, and his good works, the fruits of faith, will be taken notice of by him with commendation. He will be honored by being placed on the right hand of Christ 
and being set down with him in his throne, having a crown of righteousness given to him, and he will be glorified both in soul and body. His body will be made like Christ's glorious body, and his soul will have a glory revealed in it. And in his whole person he shall appear when Christ does with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, think not that Christ awaits his beloved bride with arms crossed, disappointed, ready to upbraid her for her many admitted imperfections. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. There is for us a shining promise of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The voice of God raised with the host of heaven and all the redeemed, together singing bright praises to Christ the King and all the saints who have been held fast in him through this bloody war with the world, the flesh, and the devil who's already lost but keeps on fighting vainly. So please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. In your pew Bible, that's page 1039. 1039, Pew Bible, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Hold on to this, people. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, the tales we'll hear and tell again and again of Christ's mighty works and his great victory over all evil and of the righteous deeds of that great multitude of saints, all imperfectly done in faith, but spirit sanctified. I can't wait to see that multitude and to hear the voice of God leading all of us in praise for mighty King Jesus. Doesn't your chest just swell just at the thought of that? But more than anything, I can't wait to see Jesus. To bow before him. Then embrace him. Praise him. Thank him. And love him forevermore without all this sin interference. I can't wait. But it's hard to be excited if you're still fearful. 
Which brings us to our fifth gospel thing. We need to learn to suffer well and keep going. Battle, season, belief in Christ cheers us all the way home for love. Turn back to 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, and just put your eyes there and just listen. Peter had seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh with his own eyes, and he had, with his own eyes, witnessed his mighty works on earth. Peter was also with the disciples when they all heard Jesus pray that night in the upper room before the crucifixion. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And Peter was there with the disciples when the risen Christ said to doubting Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, 29. Now, first Peter, Peter writes to encourage the saints in Asia Minor even further. Look at verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We should hear astonished joy in Peter's words as he recognizes the powerful world, worldwide work of God the Spirit to fulfill in these churches everything Jesus prayed for. And they'd never even seen him. Neither of you. We should see Peter's eyes well with happy tears at the incredible thought that these people still can't see Jesus and even as they suffer daily under heavy trials that we're not suffering under, yet they love him, believe in him, and persevere in him. We should imagine Peter grinning and shaking his head in wonder at God's supernatural power through his word, working mightily across the nations and across the centuries to deliver Jesus' blessing to afflicted saints exactly as he had said. In Christ, these people find the inexplicable, undefeatable joy of faith that defies an angry world system at war with God. Joy that harbors safely within it a heavenly gravity and grandeur unknown apart from the indwelling spirit. Rejoicing in a way that can only be inadequately described and, and not fully understood even by those who are right now experiencing it. 
a double joy, filled with glory, shared with all the saints of all time, all these centuries removed from A.D. 63. The joy of Christ in us and the Father in Christ, that we may all become perfectly one so that the world may know that God the Father sent God the Son and loves us, even as the Father loves the Son. Battle-seasoned belief in Christ cheers us all the way home in the certainty that God the Father loves us as much as He loves Jesus. For we can be sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, we suffering and sometimes doubting saints are already obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. With that absolute assurance of salvation already in progress, firmly settled in our hearts and minds, we depend on God's inexhaustible provisions laid up in the word of Christ for our pilgrimage every day. Five ways we learn to suffer well and keep going together with joy for the love of Christ and for his people. Gospel truth transcends our circumstance. So remember, Christ has made you God's eternal child and God never abandons his children no no matter how bad things might look. Gospel reality transforms our suffering. So remember, your suffering is temporary and necessary and productive for God's good purposes for you and for others. Trial-tested faith is our greatest earthly possession. So remember that God-gifted faith carries us through death to our true home and peace forever in Christ. Genuine faith brings forth God's commendation in the judgment at the return of the king. So remember that Christ awaits his beloved bride not with disapproval but with great expectation. For he gave himself up on the cross for the joy set before him that coming day when at last he presents the church to himself in splendor to the cheers and celebration of the multitudes led by God himself. And battle-seasoned belief in Christ cheers us all the way home for love unlike any other in the universe. Always remember that God the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus and rejoice with joy inexpressible. Father, let us praise you now for these endless stores of sustaining grace made ready in Christ Jesus for us. Amen.